last week, it shouldn't have been a surprise in one sense, in that the prophets had foretold of the various elements. But of course, often when we look back at scripture and we look forward, it's hard to see exactly how they're going to be fulfilled. Uh, and to the participants, it's particularly, um, it's particularly challenging. Um, and in this instance, most of the folk uh, are, are caught by surprise, and in fact, there are four times in the in the in the Christmas narrative, the angels have to say, "Fear not, don't be afraid," because uh, it's all very overwhelming. Well, our uh, subject this morning is actually Joseph's surprise. We'll deal with Mary next week, although Mary already knew this by the time that uh, uh, Joseph receives it, but. Uh, we're going to look at Joseph this morning in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. So let's read them together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph's quiet, peaceful life is about to be rudely interrupted by unexpected circumstances. He is surprised by this turn of events and is about to learn what God is doing to intervene in history, most surprisingly. It wasn't that the prophets hadn't foretold it, yet when it came it was overwhelming and not at all how the Jewish people had anticipated it. The entrance of God in person into our world was a rudely shocking event to those who experienced it. When God himself enters our world, it's awesome. It's disturbing. It threatens to change the course of your world. It confronts you with unpleasant truths about yourself. Perhaps that's why the world at large wants such a warm, fuzzy, memorable moment to celebrate at Christmas, to dull the pain of reality and diminish any likelihood of conviction of how alone and lonely uh, mankind is. Now, what we find at the beginning of the story is that Joseph is confused. 
And we read in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew begins with a heading, an attention-getting heading. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And what he goes on to do isn't actually to tell about the birth. <laughs> it's to, to tell, about, tell us about how it came together. Luke gives us more of the details. Matthew instead tells us where Jesus came from, and it tells the story through the eyes of Joseph. Joseph and Mary were two people brought together by the will of God. And it's tempting to say two young people, but we don't know that because it was quite common uh, for a young girl to be married to, to a slightly older man. Uh, we, nothing tells us exactly about uh, Joseph, but he does disappear somewhere along the line before Jesus' uh, ministry. But like most... Uh, and they were brought together by the will of God through their close affinity to one another in faith and godliness. It's one of the things that stands out through uh, the selection is the reason God chose this couple. Joseph had presumably been quite satisfied with the woman God had provided him and was in the middle of a formal engagement period when Mary went on a trip to Elizabeth, staying for three months. And when Mary returns, she is three months pregnant. Mark Stevenson says, I'm not sure what Joseph dreamed about when he thought about life with Mary. Like most Hebrew men of the day, I assume he imagined a house full of sons. He pictured family celebrations of the Passover and the religious festivals. Perhaps he pictured the circumcision and bar mitzvah of his sons. And of course, uh, at this time, and Jesus celebrated, uh, we just had the, the Jews have just celebrated the uh, seven nights of Hanukkah. And, uh, and lit the candle each night. And Jesus was at the, that celebration in, uh, in Jerusalem at that time. It was referred to as the Festival of Lights. He imagined his daughters finding and marrying good Jewish men. And he saw Mary in the middle of all these pictures as a devoted wife and mother. But those visions of domestic tranquility were shattered before Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage. And it says in verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Notice that Jesus is already considered Mary's husband. The Jewish engagement was a time when the couple was already considered to have entered into an official and covenantal relationship. We have a tradition of a couple being engaged, although that's dying out in our society. Uh, now you come together, have children, then get engaged, then get married. Uh, it, it's quite the reverse to what it used to be. But uh, engage, uh, the Jews in Jesus' day had a tradition of three stages. Engagement, espousal or betrothal, and marriage. Children as young as three or four years old might be presumed to uh, promise to each other in engagement by their parents. About a year before the wedding, a couple would enter the second phase of espousal or betrothal. This was as good as being married, but without having a physical relationship. If you wanted to break up from an espousal or a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. 
Betrothal was a lot more formal than our engagement period today. It was kind of a pre-marriage relationship with it. Uh, there was a ceremony that the rabbi would perform for the betrothal. However, sexual abstinence was to be maintained until after the official marriage ceremony. The betrothal lasted about a year and was then followed by marriage when the couple's physical relationship would be consummated. During the betrothal period, sexual activity was viewed as adultery. Under the strictest interpretation of the Old Testament law, it was punishable by death for both parties, although at this point in Jewish history that was not normally enforced. Robert Gundry notes in the, the Jewish context, full betrothal was so binding that its breaking required a certificate of divorce and the death of one party made the other a widow or widower. Now notice what it says about Joseph. First thing is that he was righteous, being a righteous man, meaning that his conduct was guided by his fear and reverence for God. As a righteous man, Joseph followed the law of Moses. It's a Hebraism, John MacArthur suggests, suggesting that he was a true believer in God who had thereby been declared righteous and who carefully obeyed the law. Jean Getz puts it this way in identifying him as a righteous man. We can assume that he was declared righteous because of his faith in God's promises. If so, Joseph had followed in the footsteps of Abraham, his ancestor, who had believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness. We read in Romans 5.1, sorry, uh, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 3.6, even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Joseph is a man of integrity. He's a descendant of King David, as we saw last week in the genealogy. He's Jesus' legal and earthly father, though not his physical father. And he's a person sensitive to God's guidance, and he's willing to do God's will, no matter what the consequences but in the process, he's not only righteous, some people are righteous in a very strict and legalistic manner, but Joseph was reasonable. And it says, and not wanting to disgrace her, he was caught between a high regard for the law of God and his deep love and devotion for Mary. He was a man of mercy who didn't want Mary to suffer humiliation, public disgrace and shame in an era that was dominated by self-righteous people pursuing the letter of the law, certainly the Pharisees, as we've seen in many of the gospel accounts. So now remember at this point, before the angel appears, he's going on what he understands. Somehow Mary has become pregnant, thereby, therefore by someone else, in his thinking, and yet he's not wanting to disgrace her, to, to have her go through the humiliation of public rejection and, and possibly even worse. And so he resolves in his own mind what to do. He planned to send her away secretly, which gives us an indication of his true righteousness. 
he's not only seeking to be right in law, but he's merciful. His true righteousness is not devoid for mercy. And Joseph didn't want to disgrace her, so he planned to send her away secretly. One study Bible says this, Joseph's merciful attitude gives an insight into his true nature as a man. Even this was a problematic. At least two witnesses were needed at some point to make the divorce papers legal and binding. Therefore, although Joseph desired to divorce Mary secretly, he had to at least let two others in on the secret, possibly even... Mary's father. Charles Spurgeon notes on this that when we have to do a severe thing, let us choose the tenderest manner. And maybe we shall not have to do it at all. In other words, God finds us a better path through dealing with a difficult situation. And so we find in, in verses 20 to 23, he's consoled, he's troubled, he's, he's gone to sleep on it, he's chewing and, and presumably stirring in his sleep, thinking at what to do, and he's, he's sort of settled it, settling it in his mind. But verse 20 says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, notice the word behold, whenever that comes up, it's get hold of this. It's notice this, take Matthew particularly use it, used frequently by Matthew to signal emphases and, and to prompt the reader to pay special attention or to introduce something new or unusual. God sends an angel in a dream to reassure Joseph of Mary's innocence and to reveal that the baby's conception was the Holy Spirit's work. God spoke to Joseph through dreams, just as he did to his Old Testament namesake. Remember Joseph uh, uh, in, in the Old Testament. The title Son of David reminded Joseph of his royal lineage. He, he, he's a humble carpenter or builder, depending on how you translate that today. some differences in, in understanding the he phrase in Hebrew. Often a carpenter was a builder anyway, so the distinction's fairly small. He's really a nobody in Nazareth, but he has a linkage to the royal line, so he has a, a legal right, a legal heritage. And despite his circumstances, he was a legitimate heir to the th vacant throne of David. Now, verses 1 to 17 establish Jesus as a legal son of Joseph, but here in verses 18 to 25, it denies that Joseph was Jesus' physical father. So the angel says to him, fear not. And in the Christmas narratives, there are four fear nots. Here to Joseph, to Zacharias, uh, the father of John the Baptist in Luke 1.13, to Mary in Luke 1, 30 to 37, and to the shepherds in Luke 2, 10 to 11. You see, this was difficult and mind-boggling for Joseph. Coming, God coming like this wasn't something that fit neatly, fitted neatly into his theological constructs. God was the creator of all. The sustainer of all, above everything and over everything transcendent. Sometimes I think we are so familiar with the gospel message that we forget just 
how great and holy and glorious and transcendent God is. The glory and majesty of God was so fearful that Jews wouldn't even say Yahweh or spell it out because it was considered so holy. And in fact, if you read a Tanakh today, uh, if it's translated into English from Hebrew, it goes G-D or any Jewish writing. So they just write G-D because it's too holy to say. And, and so, uh, you know, while, while it's familiar to us to use the word God, and then you hear the secular world saying, oh my, I won't say it, um, not to a Jew. And here is an angel telling Joseph in a dream that this transcendent God is coming down to earth in the form of a human baby. No wonder he says, fear not, the angel. <laughs> You'd be in fear and trepidation. And what's more, he tells him, him that it's not what it appears. For the, uh, for the child who has been conceived in her has, is of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus was not an ordinary baby, and although Mary and Joseph were humble folk, they were no ordinary couple. Uh, for they had been chosen by God to raise his only begotten son in their simple home in Nazareth. They were entrusted to raise Jesus to maturity and help it prepare him for manhood and the enormous task of redemption for which he'd been sent. You know, it says quite often that Mary treasured these things in her heart. You know, can you imagine... Uh, being the parent of a perfect child, the imperfect parent of a per perfect child, the God child. It, it's just uh, difficult to understand. The baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This was the divine child. God was coming. And there, there's no explanation as to how this happened other than what we have in Luke one thirty-five where it says, the angel said, uh, answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. As Don Carson says, there's no hint of pagan deity, human coupling in crassly physical terms. Instead, the power of the Lord manifest in the Holy Spirit, who is expected to be active during the Messianic Age, miraculously brought about the conception. I, I was reading somewhere and it says, just as God said, uh, breathed life, and, you know, and Adam was brought to life, uh, Jesus is, is conceived in a, in a similar way. So he tells him, she will bear a son. Um, and I'll go back on there for a second. She will bear a son. The angel declared to Joseph that Mary's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and would be a son. This reveals an important truth about Jesus. He's both God and human. The infinite, unlimited God took on the limitations of humanity so he could live and die for the salvation of all who would believe in him. We read in... Do I skip something? Matthew 1.16, which 
Hmm. Okay. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Okay. You will name him Jesus. One study Bible notes this, that a father was responsible for naming his son at the time of circumcision, eight days. Remember, they went. And that's where... um, uh, two folk met him and recognised him as God's answer to their prayers to the, he's the, as the promised Messiah and the angel's words implicitly command that Joseph accept his role as the father of the child in antiquity names were often thought to be emblematic of the character or the calling of the individual The name which the angel commanded Joseph to give to Mary's child was common at the time. There were a lot of Jesus, uh, people, children called by the name of Jesus. I guess it was a messianic hope uh, when you think about the nature of the meaning. Campbell Morgan says the name which the angel commanded Joseph to give to Mary's child was common at the time. Its full significance was the salvation of Jehovah or Yahweh. It's used over 700 times in the New Testament. It's a form of the Hebrew words Yehoshua. In Hebrew today it's shortened to Yeshua or Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Uh, And it means Yahweh or God will save. And so he tells him he will save his people from their sins. The the angel explained that Jesus' name revealed his purpose. He would rescue sinners from the punishment they deserve. Luke 2.11 says he would be born a saviour. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Mark 10.45 says the Son of Man is come to save. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, he was the price that had to be paid to, to release us from the debt of our sin. And in Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. These things announce that he's more than a royal or political messiah. That's what they were hoping for. They were hoping for a king, uh, just as the nation had put their hope in kings before. Now they were hoping for a king that would relieve them from the tyranny of Rome. But he's so much more than that. As David Guzik knows, this description of the work of Jesus reminds us that Jesus meets us in our sin. But his purpose is to save us from our sins. He first saves us from the penalty of sin, then from the power of sin, and finally, don't you look forward to that day, from the presence of sin. Can can you begin to picture a day when you stand in the transcendent glory of God and there is no more sin? We're, We're presented righteous, spotless, without fault before the living God, the holy and living one. And that's what he comes to do. 
And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He says, uh, he's told next that it was to fulfill what was spoken by the, the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the, the phrase that it might be fulfilled is a familiar theme throughout Matthew. Twelve times in his gospel, Matthew identifies Old Testament prophecies as being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. It implies that God was the ultimate author of the messages spoken and written by the prophets. Jesus' life happened as it did because those words of prophecy were spoken. Just as God spoke words and the creation came into being, so God spoke words through the prophets and Jesus' life came into being. And of course, it's quoting from Isaiah 7:14, Emmanuel. The title of Jesus refers to both his deity, God with us, and his identification and nearness to man. Probably, really, through this Advent period, we ought to be deeply meditating on the meaning of this name, Emmanuel. Charles Spurgeon said, Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him, in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second Advent splendor. It shows us how low God bent down to save man. He added the nature of one of his own creatures to his own divine nature, accepting the weakness, frailties and dependency that the creature experiences. It shows what a great miracle it was that God could add a human nature to his own and still remain God. It shows the compatibility between the unfallen human nature and the divine nature, that the two could be joined shows that we are truly made in the image of God. It shows us that we can come to him. If he has come to us, then we can come to him by his gracious invitation. Then if Jesus Christ be God with us, let us come to God without any question or hesitancy. Whoever you may be, you need no priest or intercessor to introduce you to God for God has introduced himself to you. What a beautiful picture that Spurgeon paints there. Now the issue is, what's Joseph do about this? We find that he's committed to doing what God has asked him to do. And Joseph, it says, awoke from his sleep. He wasn't just dreaming. He believed God. And Joseph's obedience is notable. He did not doubt or waver. He instantly understood the truth and the importance of the angelic messenger that came to him in that dream. And so he complied. Now, one of our children actually said to us on one stage when we were talking about uh, certain aspects of belief and, and life, and, oh, you just want me to conform to an image. And we said, no, we want to see the reality inside coming out, not, not simply doing it because you're expected to be a certain way. So his compliance is not simply appearing to give. It's a heartfelt thing. And he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. 
He obeyed God and proceeded with the marriage plans. Although others may have disapproved of his decision, Joseph went ahead with what he knew was right. And sometimes we avoid doing what is right because of what others might think. Like Joseph, we need to choose to obey God rather than worry about the approval of others. But not only did he simply comply, he genuinely cared for Mary. It says he he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Despite appearances and public perception, he looked after Mary, took care of her, and was careful not to get in God's way. The words imply that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations after Jesus' birth. Uh, That uh, denies uh, the Catholic concept of the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. Uh, which I don't know how they explain that Jesus then had brothers and sisters. <laughs> A little bit confusing, but that's not what the Bible tells us. Matthew's careful to indicate, to indicate that no human father had any role in Jesus' conception. As, as Don Carson says, Matthew wants to make Jesus' virginal conception quite unambiguous, for he adds that Joseph had no sexual union with Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. Then he did what was called, and he, he called him Jesus, and he called his name Jesus. He did what God told him to do. Despite being a common name in that time, as we've pointed out, it was genuinely great meaning and would come to be the greatest name, the name above all names. As David McLemore says, when this world by its sin declared war on God, the The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, as we saw in Zechariah, sent a baby. It's that baby to whom we look right now. He's more than we imagined and he's all that we need. He's God, he's man, and he's Emmanuel, God with us. You see, the entrance of God in person into our world demands a righteous response by faith, which he will reward with his son, the Saviour. Joseph didn't question the angel's explanation for Mary's pregnancy. He obeyed without question what the angel told him to do, going ahead with his plans to take Mary as his wife. He's a model of the obedience that should characterise Jesus' disciples, those of us that call ourselves Christians. Christian not only in name, but in character and conduct. We read in Mark 1.14, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Christmas reminds us that he came for a purpose, to save us. And Jesus, beginning of his ministry, uh, 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 begins by saying, here it is, here's the time, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent. Turn away from doing things your own way. And believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior, as God with us, Now, many didn't believe in Jesus' day. 
Uh, crowds followed him, and, but then gradually as you follow, they, they were more interested in what he could do for them than what they could do for him in the sense of following him. Of a life of sacrifice, a life of death to self. But it says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he became the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Joseph had to trust that this child was truly the Messiah, the child, the, the Son of God, who has come to save his people from their sins. Is he your saviour? Do you come into this Christmas season, is it just a tradition? Or do you come rejoicing for you know the joy of his salvation? And, and, and you're living it out in obedience and faith, seeking to walk with him. We're going to start close with the hymn in a moment. We'll pray first, but we're going to close with the hymn, O Come, it's an invitation. But notice what it says. O come all ye faithful. It's come, believe him, trust him, and follow him. So let's, let's just close with a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, the, the events and the stories as they're retold so many times throughout our life, can be just, if we're not careful, can be just a bit too familiar. But these were momentous events at which you intervened in history. Even though they've tried to change <laughs> the titles now, it used to be Before Christ and Anno Domini in the Year of the Lord. Um, now it's the Common Era. <laughs> BCE, and, uh, and I forget the, the following one, but, but time is measured by your coming, by your giving your son, by the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One from heaven stepping into human history and changing it forever. Father, we thank you that it's a reminder that you came but it's a reminder that you are coming again and this time to rule. But we thank you that un until that time, and Father, I just uh, heard uh, during the week um, a testimony that 200 Muslim men in Gaza received a vision of Jesus on the same night during this battle, the battles going on in Gaza and gave their lives to Christ. I don't know the veracity of it. But Father, that has been our prayer both to Jew and Gentile alike, to Arab and Muslim, people of any kind that they might see you and know you and come to rejoice and to, to live out the eternal life that you give us and that we look forward to in perpetuity when you complete the work in us. And we just thank you. We thank you for Joseph's example. We pray that you would help us 
to become like him that is to be truly righteous to be truly a follower of Jesus not in name only but in every aspect of our, our obedience of our face of our reflecting and trans, uh, 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 reflecting your glory worked out in you